Please remain standing for a reading from God's holy word. Chris, can you hear me right there? Good, good deal. Uh, I've messed this thing up enough that I'm going to just keep checking uh, with them. And there it is. The reading from God's holy word from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 2 and 12. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And skipping down, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Our Heavenly Father, this is a hard command to follow. Would you help us? Uh, would you help us become the sort of people who are honorable? Would you help us honor those uh, you've placed in our lives? Use your word to accomplish this purpose, we ask in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, greetings and welcome uh, again to uh, Christ the King, Savannah. Uh, we've been working through uh, in our Sunday mornings uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, just a little recap for those of you who haven't been with us. I see some new faces out there. The, we include these first two verses in the Ten Commandments uh, each week because they are the precursor and in some ways the, the promise to every other commandment. Uh, there's no Ten Commandments without these first two verses. What they teach is this that God's saving activity precedes our behaving for Him. The Ten Commandments are not ways to be good so that you can earn God's love. No. Here, you belong to God before you ever learn to behave. Uh, we got to get the order right, okay? God saves us, pours out His love on sinners like us, not when we're good, uh, but even when we're bad. We belong before we behave. Sin, then, is what we do to cover up our shame. That's what we use to cover up our shame rather than turning to him. Idolatry, the first couple commandments, are the things that we turn to to help us feel safe when we don't trust that it's God's saving activity that keeps us safe. Uh, last week we said that, or two weeks ago, excuse me, I've got a little tickle in my throat, so I may be coughing a little bit uh, this morning. God is faithful even when we aren't. That's why he commands us not to take his name in vain because when we break promises and use God talk to get what we want, uh, and then break our word, uh, it starts to sound like uh, maybe actually we are not representing him the way that he is. He always keeps his promises. Um, and then last week we talked about Sabbath, this idea that God covers our shame so that we don't have to with our accomplishments, that many of us are furiously working uh, in order to be uh, unashamed and that God actually covers that. And instead of using work for that, he gives us meaningful work and refreshing rest and in his presence. Today we come to the most abused commandment, possibly of all the commandments. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And I thought it would be appropriate, given the way this sort of commandment gets used, to start off talking about weapons of mass destruction. Um, Donald Rumsfeld in 2002 has this famous quote. It won Word Salad of the Year by some... Uh, by some magazine that ranks these things, I guess. And it's an amazing quote. He's talking about uh, the lack of evidence for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq uh, as the Bush administration is sort of making its case for why we ought to, to go to war there. And he says something that has a much broader application than simply to the geopolitical hunt for weapons of mass destruction. He, he says this, and I think it applies to every one of our hearts, if, if, if you can make any sense out of it, right? It's simultaneously so foolish and so profound. Uh, at the same time, he says this, 
Uh, reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me. Because as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And if one looks throughout the history of our country and other free countries, it's the latter category that tends to be the difficult ones, the unknown unknowns. I mean, who can make sense of this? It only really makes sense as, as you parse it out. But I actually think it also makes sense of much of our daily experience if you can kind of get through it. Um, in RUF, my first, uh, the first call that I, I had as a pastor was as campus minister to RUF at SCAD. And we used to have this paradigm that we talked about that kind of mapped into your first five years of, of being a campus minister. But I think this is true for anybody doing anything that they've never done before, right? We said that you sort of move through four stages uh, of, of doing this new thing. The first stage was what we called unconscious incompetence, right? You didn't know how dumb you were, okay? You had no idea. You couldn't even figure it out. This is your first year as a campus minister. You just showed up and you didn't even know what you didn't know about how to do this job, right? After a year, maybe two of experience, all of a sudden you start to see all the mistakes you made that first year in your period of unconscious incompetence, right? That, and that was the hardest phase because phase two was conscious incompetence. You started to learn how dumb you were, but you still weren't good enough to fix this thing yet, okay? You still didn't know what to do about it. You just knew all the things you were doing wrong, okay? That's stage two, conscious incompetence. Stage three was this. After a while, if you hung in there long enough, spent a couple years gaining experience, gaining wisdom, you would become consciously competent. You, if you really thought about it, you could start to get it right. If you really thought about it, you could start to get it right. Okay. And then the last stage, the best stage, some would say the most boring stage because there's no more challenges anymore, is conscious or unconscious competence. You just did the right thing without even thinking about it, right? You know, you would move through some of these stages. And I think these are the stages. This is the process of learning anything, right? It's not just about being a pastor or a campus minister. It's what Donald Rumsfeld is talking about in his Weapons of Mass Destruction discourse, that we live in a world where we do not know, where we do not know. That's just what it means to be a human. When you are born, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. You don't even know what you don't know, right? The fundamental question, I think, is this. How do we live in this world of unknown unknowns when we are unconsciously incompetent, where we don't know what we don't know? How do we live? How do we survive? How do we get anywhere? So this commandment speaks to something far deeper than how to be nice to old people, right? That's not actually what's going on here. I, think, I mean, that may be one uh, application of this commandment, but it speaks to something far different. It's really a matter of survival and life or death in a world where we don't know what we don't know. What does it mean to honor your parents? Why is it hard? How does Jesus help us change? Uh, that's where we're going today. What does it mean to honor your parents? Uh, I said earlier that this command gets abused. Here's how this command normally gets used, right? A parent and a child are having a conflict. I see parents and children uh, out there today. Um, so have fun at lunch uh, after this, this service. I'm gonna, kids, I'm, I'm working for you with this qualification, right? So pay very close attention if you're a child in this room, which all of you are, right? Uh, how it normally gets used is to stop an argument. It's a power move by older generations to make younger generations shut up when they're saying inconvenient things, right? That's how it goes. 
Doesn't matter how old the kid is, the kid could be 5 or 15 or 50 or 80. At some point in time, when the parent is tired of having the argument or the discussion, they'll pull out the fifth commandment, you know? Honor your father and your mother. Just do what I say, right? Shut up, right? One time after a, a family conflict of my own, I was in seminary, uh, been doing some therapy, starting to realize some of the patterns in my family system, and I had a really honest, truthful conversation with my mom, which, which upset her a little bit. Uh, and she talked to a friend who was a former pastor. I didn't know this guy, but I got a phone, num phone call later that day uh, from this person, and I said, hello, and he said, hello, is this Soren? And I was like, yes, and he's like, I was speaking with your mom, and you know what you need? You need a heavy dose of the fifth commandment. I said, who is this? And I hung up the phone. Now, to this person's credit, he apologized later. Uh, so well done um, to that guy, right? This is how it normally goes, right? If, we, if, if a younger generation says something which upsets the emotional stability of the older generation, the older, older generation will say, honor your father and your mother. That's what you have to do, right? And it's so interesting how we do that, how we abuse and use this commandment in that way, as if honor and honesty are diametrically opposed or our intention in some way. Is that really true? It seems to me like in an effort to honor uh, your parents, part of what that mean, would mean would be being honestly truthful about them. I'm, I'm sorry, Grandma, you can no longer drive anymore. You're going to kill someone. Is not dishonoring your grandma, right? It's saving her and everyone else. You know? that's, lo that's loving honesty, okay? So we can't use this commandment or abuse this commandment to say that it prevents difficult conversations between happening between generations. That's not what this is. That's not what it means when it says to honor your parents, right? The reality is actually the opposite. You are refusing to honor your parents if you refuse to have difficult conversations with them, okay? So let's get that out of the way. This is not a tool for conflict avoidance. Sorry, parents. Sorry, children, right? Actually, Jesus himself says this as well in Matthew 12, his mom and his brothers show up outside because Jesus is doing some crazy talk, right? Talking about being the Messiah and everything. And his parents freak out. His mom freaks out. His brothers freak out. And they show up out, outside where he's teaching. And they're like, Jesus, come out here. You know, like some people come inside and like, Jesus, your mom is here for you. You know, like awkward, right? <laughs> grab him, grab the Messiah by the ear and, and take him home uh, and lecture him on knowing his place or something. Uh, and what does Jesus do? Uh, he looks around and says, where's my mother and who are my brothers? What does he say? The ones who fear the Lord. These are my mother and my brother. He's looking around at the people in the room. He's like, this is, these are, are my family. Don't accuse Jesus of failing to keep the commandments. That puts you in bad company, right? Jesus honored his mother by telling the truth. If it's not that, if it's not that, if, if there is no difference between honor and honesty, then what is it? I want you to consider context for a second. What would a parent have meant in the context of these verses, what would it mean to be a parent? You know, here, mostly, let's be honest, a parent in our culture is someone who keeps you safe long enough uh, to be able to get your own place and order Amazon products yourself, right? Like, that's what a parent does, you know? Like, that's the basic gist. Uh, but then a parent was much more, right? Because, like, there weren't school teachers out there doing their thing, you know? Like, there weren't all these sort of other authorities. It was, it was the village. It was the tribe. It was the clan. The parent was the source of information for survival. The only source, right? Maybe the parent and, like, a priest, if you were super lucky slash unlucky. Depends on what you think about priests, right? They were, that's what they were. They were the sole education for almost all of life. Your parent gave you your vocation, 
you know. They taught you how to do what it was that was going to earn you a living, right? They taught you about how to have relationships uh, with other people. They taught you religious principles. We've outsourced a lot of that uh, in our culture to different places. There's some value in that and some lack of value in that. Uh, it's good to have authorities outside the home because uh, that's how you do things like come up with penicillin, you know, like no parent could ever pass along enough specialized knowledge to develop that unless we had sort of outside authorities. It's a really, that's a good thing, right? But there's also a difference in it, right? There's also a difference in it. We have lots of different authority figures, uh, even though we don't call them that. Uh, but that's not how it was then. Every bit of information you're going to go get to survive, if you're an original hearer of this verse, uh, would have come from your parents. It raises the stake a little bit. It's still that way sometimes. I was talking to a friend who was telling me this story. They gave me permission uh, to use it about going out to visit uh, some friend. This, my friend was going out to visit some friends in the country. Uh, and out there, the, the parents were very stern. They were very strict. They expected immediate obedience uh, from their children. Well, my friend and his friend were swimming in a creek and uh, my friend's friend's dad, I should have just given these people fake names to facilitate the telling of the story, but we're here now. Um, my friend's friend's dad was on the creek and all of a sudden he just said, to me. My friend's like, huh? And my friend's friend just immediately paddled across the creek, right? And so my friend was like, okay, I'm headed over there too. He turns around, there's a water moccasin in the creek, right? You see the snake. Instant obedience. Absolutely necessary for survival, Right? especially if you're in the midst of a tribe that is walking across the desert, right? There are snakes everywhere, you know? Literal ones and metaphorical ones, right? Snakes. You needed parents then in an effort to survive. You have to honor your parents in a world where you don't know what you don't know. That's just living, that's just how do you live alive. To honor parents means this. To have a default respect for your parent as a truth-telling thing. A default position of trust. Not of suspicion or cynicism, but of trust. It means being willing to say that your parents don't have to prove anything to you. They have to be disproven, maybe. But that is not the default. You accept and receive this from your parents uh, that's what it means to honor them, to suspect that maybe they know something about survival in the world. That's what it's saying. Two implications here. I want to speak to the young people in the room uh, and to the old people, all of whom are both parents and children. It's fun how this works out. Uh, if you don't like how your parents did it, you get a chance to try it yourself one day. Um, so buckle up. For young people, this might mean this, and I'm going to say this harshly and then walk, walk it back. Shut up and learn for a second. Okay? Shut up and learn for, for a second. From your parents, obviously, the obvious application of this, to be quiet and learn. It does not mean that your parents are always right about everything. It does not mean that. But it does mean that actually you can approach your parents and your relationship with them from a position of, okay, what truth can I glean from this person, even if it's not the truth that they're attempting to dispense, right? There's this sort of de facto response of, Something good and true is here. This person is still alive. They've made it this far. You know, like it might be time to hush and learn what in their story has shaped the perspective that they're sharing from me. And how can I learn from that? Is there any truth to it that I may not have seen before? If you are young, it may be time to be quiet for a second and listen, or at least to lead 
with questions, right? It may mean this, too, for all of us. To learn from traditions. To learn from traditions. Old things from the past, which have survived for hundreds of years. C.S. Lewis makes this exact point uh, in his introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation, this 15, well, 1,800-year-old book. Uh, in the introduction, Lewis writes that uh, everybody should read one old book, uh, and then one new book, and then another old book. He said you should alternate constantly. He says it's not because old books are necessarily better uh, than new books. It's just that they're different. They have a different perspective. They have different failings, different blind spots, different attributes, different assets. The, good, the thing that makes them valuable, these old books, is that they aren't us. He said I just, he's not being conservative here. He's saying... If we had books from the future, you could read those too. That's fine. But until somebody comes up with a book from the future, all we have is books from the past. It's worth reading old books to learn from them, right? Here at Christ the King, we try to sing old songs, you know? Sometimes the language is clunky in the hymns. I get it. Sometimes it's not the language of your heart. I get it. That's exactly why we do it. That's not a bug, it's a feature. Because we expect that at some point in time, we will encounter a situation that is like the situation that these people in the past encountered. And when that happens, we will need the words. We will need the words. So yes, we improvise. Yes, we innovate. But we also read old books, sing old songs, listen to old people. Young people, for a second, can we drop the default um, I'm not going to say hermeneutic, but there's another word. Can we drop the default posture of suspicion of anything that's old? Um, for old people, I have even some harder advice for you. You have to be honorable. Uh-oh, right? <laughs> if it's true that I've got to invite uh, younger generations to honor the older, then there's this aspirational quality to the fifth commandment as well that says you must be an honorable person. Here's what that means. Be honorable and know things, okay? You have a responsibility to be competent in the ways of Christian living in the world, right? Uh, not to check out, uh, not to disengage, but actually to know things, right? I was talking about, a, uh, I was talking about what it was like to grow up when computers and the, uh, and the internet were first becoming a, a regular thing in, in households. Uh, I remember when we got our, our first computer and uh, my parents sort of brought it in to the house. And there was this sort of radical transformation in that moment between who, could know th who knew things and what people did. It was like a generation just unquestioningly sort of brought all this kind of technology into the house. And then all of a sudden, like, we're dealing with the wreckage of it like 30 years later, Right. People were addicted to all sorts of stuff that they found there. You know, it's like, it's actually your job as an old person to be the watcher on the walls, to know how to live, right? To be the sort of person that we need in order to survive, right? You've got to know it. Man. And then you have to stay engaged with younger generations enough to pass it on, you know? And that means stepping into some really difficult, vulnerable, intimate conversations that maybe you'd feel uncomfortable with, you know? Man, I remember the day I learned how to shave, or didn't learn how to shave. I'd been developing this little mustache. It was seventh grade. I didn't know what to do with it. My dad was looking for tenure. He was, he was having to work a lot to try and get tenure. And I developed this thing, and I was starting to get some grief uh, about it at school. And so I came home, and what did I do? I, I, said, I said, Dad, you're going to teach me how to shave. And he taught me how to shave, right? No, 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 not my story, right? I got giant scissors out, 
from the kitchen and I went to war on this mustache, right? And listen, look, I had a good dad. Everybody does this, but like everybody has these moments where I'm sure they regret. I'm sure he regrets that one. But how many people have I spoken to in my own pastoral ministry who said that the important questions, conversations, and difficulties in life were left up to the gym locker room than with their fathers and mothers, whether in their family or in the faith, you know? The fifth commandment asks our old people to be honorable, to pass on the wisdom of Christian living, right? This is your responsibility if you have younger people. Uh, yours. They respect you, naturally, uh, more than anyone else. You have to do it. There's another part to being honorable uh, than this, and I told you this is going to be hard for older generations, uh, too. You have to be honorable. Part of being honorable is shutting up when you don't know something right? You want to be a trustworthy person? You want to, be, you want to have the, uh, the reputation as being a truth-telling thing that people can go to uh, for the truth? Then when you don't know something, instead of pretending like you know it and telling a lie that doesn't facilitate human flourishing or spiritual flourishing, what do you do? Say something like this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should all practice. You should say, I don't know. You could try that. There's nothing less becoming than an older person typing in all caps on Facebook, okay? That is not honorable. It's not honorable, you know? It like sacrifices the honor and respect that maybe could come your way when you weigh in on everything. The honorable person is the one who says, I don't know when they don't know, you know? Like maybe, maybe the younger generation doesn't have to have your opinion on everything, but instead is invited into the true knowledge of what it means to flourish as a human and a Christian. And when you plant your flag, it means something. It means something. Right? Young people, shut up and ask questions. Right? Old people, maybe you got to shut up some too and stay engaged. Why is it so hard for us to do, to honor uh, our parents? Why is that difficult? I'm going to give you two reasons, I think. And... Look, okay, this is just Soren who's thought about this some this week. Okay, this is not the Bible, but uh, I think it tracks. But I want to make that clear. Two reasons. One is sociocultural. One is personal, individual. Uh, technology always favors the young. Uh, anytime there's a new, uh, a radically different transformation of technology, uh, it demands a whole different set of skills and some would even say virtues in order to use that technology well. Uh, one of the things we used to talk about in journalism school was the famous uh, televised debate between Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, this thing was on uh, TV and it was on the radio. Uh, and everybody who listened to the radio thought that Nixon won the debate. They thought they, he smoked Kennedy, right? But everybody who watched on TV saw something radically different. They had radically different perceptions. There was Kennedy, young, attractive, charismatic, right? And then here was Nixon, boring, stodgy, a fuddy-dud. Kennedy smoked him for those who watched TV. A radically different set of virtues mattered all of a sudden. Now it mattered way less how you could sort of uh, cogently put together an argument and way more say what you look like, your presence, you know, like a radically different set of virtues. And it demanded different skills and different abilities, right? That's what happens when new technologies arrive, arise, new virtues are demanded, a different sort of person must emerge. We've seen this literally happen three times over the last like 15 years. Think about how every boomer is on Facebook, every millennial is on Instagram, and every Gen Z is on TikTok or Snapchat, right? And it takes 
different skill sets, right? Completely different skill sets, you know? And you have to get good at different things in order to deal with it, right? By playing that game yourself, you are mortgaging future respect and credibility for five minutes of relevance, right? It's a, va it's a vapor. There will always be a new app, young people. I hate to break it to you. You're about to be irrelevant. It's coming very soon. So much sooner than you think. It's coming so much sooner than you think, right? We're in a, we live in a technological moment. Uh, technological innovation is what our society is built on. Think Silicon Valley. Move fast and break things, right? Sort of the opposite of the ethos of uh, Scripture here uh, when it says that. It's hard because we live in an age that because of radical technological transformation, uh, there's a basic suspicion of old people as outdated. Outdated. Your time has passed, right? Um, and is there anything worse than an old person trying to still play the game? You know, like, don't get on Snapchat, boomers. It's fine. They're fine. It's going to be fine, all right? There's social, sociocultural pressures uh, not to honor um, the age. But here's the thing. Those pressures work because they're playing on a string that is already there in our hearts, right? Here's the thing. It's terrifying to have to trust someone else for our well-being. In a world where we don't know what we don't know, in a world of unknown unknowns, where we're just trying to survive, the hardest thing to do, the most vulnerable thing to do, is to trust someone else. Is to say, help, I need you. That fills us with anxiety. What if we are let down? What if they don't know? What if we are betrayed? It's the old question. The old question from Genesis 3, right? The authorities are holding out on you. What if God is not good? What if he's not going to tell you what you need to know? We would much rather achieve our good fortune, get to the promised land on our own and take it by force and learn to survive. On some level, I think it's true of all of us. We never quit being the toddler who's three, year old, three years old and his parents are trying to get him out the door and he's screaming about how he can tie his shoes by himself. You know, like we're all that all the time. I can do it by myself. I can. This longing to insulate our hearts from the disappointment that says I need to depend on somebody or something for my life to be put back together again. What do we do with this when it feels hard? How does it play out? The young people say, okay, boomer. They marginalize, they mock, they use cynicism to cut down to size. Uh, the wisdom of ancient generations. Old people do one of two things. They desperately attempt to control uh, the younger generation because they believe that they can bring the promised land by force. If you will just be like me, if you'll just do what I say, right? Desperate control on the one hand, and when that doesn't work, disengagement, check out. Ugh, well, it's too much for me to fix or change. I guess they'll just have to do it by themselves, right? Uh, young people use cynicism, the old desperate control and disengagement. For both, what if it was this? What if in an effort to keep the fifth commandment, we said this, we're going to let go, both young and old, of be just like me. That I myself can bring the kingdom and the promised land by force of my opinions and my own wits. To honor and to be honorable is terribly vulnerable and painful. It means letting go of control and your own efforts to force the promised land into existence. How are we going to do that? 
How are we going to do that is the question. Because it's hard. It's deeply countercultural. That's actually exactly what God speaks to. <coughs> this is the first commandment which has an explicit promise attached to it uh, in the Ten Commandments. It's almost like God is speaking to the anxiety and the fear that is underneath uh, every single one of us as we seek to dishonor the sources of wisdom in our lives, right? He gives a promise. He says what? That your days may be long. That's not just lengthy. It's actually full is more the connotation of that word, that your, words, that your days may be full in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, it's almost like he's refathering us a little bit. He's saying, look, you get to the promised land not by force of your own will, not by your own ingenuity, not through be like me. You get to the promised land because I am giving it to you. I am giving it to you. He offers up this reassurance that he will care for us, that he will care for us, which frees us from the war of generations and demanding that we become like one another. Jennifer Flewellen was a mother of three who was driving home uh, from work one day on the phone with her husband, started feeling a little lightheaded. She hit a light pole uh, in a car accident and fell into a coma. Day two, the doctors came to her mother and said, it's time to take her off life support. Time to take her off. She's not coming back from this. Her mother, named Jennifer, disagreed. Uh, so we got Fluella and we got Jennifer here. She disagreed and for the next five years fought both the physical reality of Fluellen's condition and the bureaucratic red tape. Her own job as a seamstress, she worked 50 hours a week at. And the doctor's advice to pull the plug at any moment, she had to move her daughter five different uh, permanent care homes in five years uh, because each place uh, ran out of patience with her. Uh, and her insistence on caring for her daughter. She would show up to feed, visit, and care for her daughter while she lay in bed, totally unresponsive. She took her for walks. She told her what her kids were doing. Uh, she walked her through the halls um, for five years. One day she took her daughter outside and was telling her about a joke that mom's boyfriend had told. When she heard a noise, <coughs> she looked. She was afraid at first. She thought she was dying. There's a smile on Fluellen's face. She's like, stop. Nobody believed it. Nobody believed her. For weeks, nobody believed her. She's like, she's waking up. It was just a brief flicker of recognition, and then she went back to sleep. Her mom kept coming, kept working. Finally, she got it on video. Fluellen, after five years there, five years of the care of her mother, had woken up. Had woken up. It was still a fight. Uh, her mom said to uh, one doctor, she needs speech therapy. And the doctor said, why? She can't speak. And she said, that's why she needs speech therapy, because she can't speak, right? People were still sort of saying she's not fully at home. But a year later, after mom's consistent loving care, Jennifer went home to live with her. She attended her son's senior night at a high school football game five years after having been in a coma for five years. Here's what I'm saying. You are not the parent here. God is. You know. All we, like her, have been in sort of a coma, desperate for salvation. And what God is saying to you is this. 
I will care for you. I will take you to the promised land. You can humbly receive the grace and mercy that I will pour out you on you both now and in, this, in my Son, Jesus Christ. I will do it for you. I will do it for you. Because I love you in ways that parents never could. In ways that parents never could. We honor our father and mother not because they're perfect, uh, but because we're commanded to. We honor them by telling the truth, right? Honor and honesty. But we do it because we know that be like me is not how the promised land comes. It's not how we get there. No. It's trusting in the grace and feeding of God our Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, would You give us spirits of submission uh, to old things? Would You help us to trust that You have been at work down through the ages that we got something to learn from there? Would you help us to trust that you are good and you pour out your grace upon us? Make us the sort of people who can receive loving care. We ask that in your son Jesus' name. Amen. We stand to sing our song of response, Jesus cast a look on.